How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Better With Brock podcast. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sue Varma on the show. She's a psychiatrist and a cognitive behavioral therapist based in New York City. She served as the pioneering medical director and psychiatrist of the 9-11 mental health program and still sees clients to this day. I really wanted her to come on the podcast to talk about her book, Practical Optimism, because optimism is something close to my heart that really got me through some tough times in my life. And I know, and you'll find out throughout this podcast, that her story required a lot of optimism as well. She's a very self-made woman. And optimism seems to just be this thing that is, is seen as airy-fairy. It's a bit woo-woo. It's a bit, you know, people will say, oh, cheer up and look at the bright side of life and just have a positive mindset. And you just kind of like roll your eyes and there's no real direction with it, but with practical optimism, she lies out these steps and a structure and something to apply yourself to, something to better yourself with when times do get tough. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Sue. I'm very personally interested in the topic of optimism because I felt like, <clears throat> excuse me, in a in a relatively dark time in my life, it was the only thing that got me through. I happened to stumble upon at this time where I was younger, I, I lost my mother, I stumbled along this, this book and it was The Power of Positive Thinking and by Norman Vincent Peale and I read it and first of all I thought it was, oh here we go, you know, another self-help book but I was really in this space, I was, you know, I was, I was quite young and I just found that it was really life-changing. I'd never really had a ton of people talk about this idea of, of just thinking more positively. And yeah, it was a dark time. I felt like it really turned my life around. So I feel very grateful for it. And I feel like in this day and age, it can be quite, I don't know, a bit la-la or a bit like airy-fairy optimism, people are like, yeah, just be positive. And you kind of just like roll your eyes because you're like, oh, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. Like, oh, I'm just meant to just be happy when this, you know, terrible thing has just happened. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. Like, what's your relationship to, to optimism? Like, what's your story before we kind of jump into the book yeah. and everything like that? Because I'd love to know how it's impacted you. Yes. So, Brock, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for being so open and sharing about your sort of like journey that includes loss and grief. And it mm. sounds like early on. And I think that's kind of also how I came to this. You know, I, um, you know, talk a little bit about my uh, mother's illness and how I felt like in the midst of when I was doing my, my training in, in medicine and psychiatry and I'm working 100 hours a week how I ended up kind of having like a breakdown because I felt like I had to be there for everybody and uh, including her. And, um, you know, I was raised in this um, family of physicians and, you know, um, people who are very mission driven and given back to society. And so I was kind of always raised to prioritize giving back and had this idea that like, you're tough, you can handle it. Like you, you provide care to other people. The idea of taking time, taking a break, getting help, for myself, like non-existent. And so I would say from a personal point of view, like coming into therapy, there, I was in my training and I remember a professor came and spoke to us 
And I was having medical symptoms that like I got checked out and they're like, you're totally fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And then this person, professor came and gave a lecture on cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's all about shifting your mindset and being very proactive and learning skills and tools to change the way you're thinking to better, better cope with stress, better manage your emotions. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like a skill set, a tool set, an action set. And that's when I became a therapist ready for therapy. And even though it had been encouraged, all of us who were training to be psychiatrists for us to go for our own therapy, I never really made it a priority. Time, money, like all of the reasons for many reasons why many people don't go and get help when they need it. And then the other big influence was my work with 9-11 survivors and trying to understand like how is it that some people can go through really dark times and kind of emerge on the other side like looking somewhat okay or acting okay or you know being in a good position and i became interested in resilience and through resilience i learned about optimism and optimism is one key feature of it and then i just went you know down the rabbit hole the good rabbit hole of doing tons of research and looking at the science and exactly like what you said where's the woo-woo aspect of optimism and then where does it become what i call practical optimism and we could talk about that but Mm. there definitely is a distinction yeah that's what i have always gravitated towards because i've come from a place where you know people call a spade a spade people say how it is and i really appreciate that and that's how i talk as well that's how i communicate with people in my real life and also my clients and on social media i'll tell you if you're trying to bullshit me or, or if you're trying to you know, tell me that this is happening because I can see literally that something else is happening. So there's, you know, someone's lying here or something else is happening. Um, so I really appreciate practical optimism because, yeah, like mission-driven people that you are surrounded by, your family and your circle, I'm pretty similar. And sometimes when people talk about optimism, it just feels like there's nothing actually set in stone that you can do. So it's awesome that you've you know provided this resource, your book, Practical Optimism, to actually give people something to follow. Like you have these pillars as well that people can stand by and live by. Um, so where is that gray area kind of like made clear in terms of the practical and the yeah. almost airy-fairy aspect? Like how do you determine the difference? Yes. So optimism by definition is um, looking at life and situations and always imagining, hoping, anticipating a positive outcome. And Mm -hmm. optimism, the traditional way that we look at it, it only focuses on mindset. And practical optimism goes one step beyond. It says, how do we turn positive outlooks into positive outcomes? And we do that through learning a skill set. And it's not just the mindset. It's giving people actual resources. And so each of these eight pillars are, there's a theoretical, there's a scientific aspect to it, but then very quickly after hearing a little bit of theory and science and patient stories or personal stories quickly gets into tangible, like boom, boom, boom. This is how you actually cultivate it. This is what it looks like. This is where you can have blind spots and challenges to developing it. And don't worry, I got your back. We're going to work on this together. And I'm sort of like a guide and you know, a narrator, if you will, throughout to helping people in that journey. And also like what you said is really valuable that the airy fairy part of it is there can be something dismissive about traditional optimism that just get over it, you know, just look on the bright side. And when someone mm. is struggling and suffering, we know that there's nothing you can say to them in that moment sometimes 
that might lift them up or that can comfort them. And maybe really all they need is just to feel validated, to feel heard, to feel empathized with, to feel supported. And I love the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. I love I love self-help books in general, and they've helped me during the darkest of times. And I also mm. remember being a kid and I was shy. And, you know, it, it it is kind of at odds with some of the work that I do now as a public speaker, keynote speaker, speaking on live TV. And I knew when I was a kid that, like, I wanted very much to connect with people. And I knew that I also had an obstacle. And I went out and buy a book, you know, from saving up from babysitting money. I was like 12 years old and my friends and I were at the mall and everyone's looking at, you know, cool shoes and outfits and makeup. And, you know, I did that, too. But then I would sneak into like the local bookstore and be like hanging out in the self-help section and picked up a book called Conquering Shyness. And it gave me tangible tips, but it also just made me feel empowered. Like, you know what? I'm not alone. Mm. I'm not the only one struggling. Apparently other people can't speak publicly either, but I knew that I wanted to get out of my own way. And so practical optimism is being like, all right, we all have challenges. Maybe your challenge is that you're a natural born pessimist because that is a thing. Optimism Mm. is genetic to some degree, but only 25% of it. The rest is really up to us. And that to me was the most interesting part of the research that I did is learning that there's a gene that codes potentially some of it is controversial but there's a gene that codes for optimism but really what it codes for is the ability to have social skills to have coping skills and guess what we can all develop those abilities so then i got really excited i'm like okay how do we develop those abilities and then that's what the book is about and these eight pillars that if you were to think and act like an optimist this is what you would do and this is why you need to do it because optimists live longer they're healthier, they're happier, they have more productive lives. But we have to be careful to not have toxic um, optimism and toxic positivity, which is that woo thinking, but also can be kind of blind optimism, which is burying your head in the sand, something called the ostrich effect. Like the ostriches is burying their head in the sand, they're like, everything will work out. The doctor's like, hey, but you have a diagnosis of cholesterol and diabetes, and the blind optimist will be like, nah, it's all good, it'll figure itself out. So we don't want that either. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a tough balance as well because I, I, I've i been surrounded by many people on the, I guess, optimism spectrum of, you know, being a little bit positive and then being like blindly positive. Like I remember meeting a person who was a singer because my my past, I was a singer and he was a singer and he was like, I'm going to move to LA, you know, I'm going to be this huge star. And, and we lived in Christchurch, New Zealand, which, you know, most of the population of the world don't even know where it is. Um, and you know, I wasn't out there doubting him, but he had no plan towards it. There was no saving up for a flight, which is just the the first basic step. Like, how are you going to get there? And then, okay, well, when you're over there, who are you going to see? Are you going to go perform? Are you going to go write songs with someone? And there was just no, there was just no plan. And that kind of made me think while I was around that, like, okay, there's some sort of balance. Like, I'm all about positive thinking, but where's the plan? Who are you going to talk to? And then like step by step by step by step. And mm-hmm. I found it very helpful to be around those sort of people. I actually found myself in church when I was going through this thing with my mother losing her. And I found it so beneficial to be around. And this is one of your pillars of optimism around just around people, but they were mm-hmm. also wiser, older and had, had lived more life than me. So they were kind of like mentors mm-hmm. to me. And mm-hmm. it happened to me when I was 12, but I really started, I guess, dealing with it when I was around 14, 15. And that was such a strong 
help for me because I felt like as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, you don't have any answers for anything. You know, you're trying to go through mm -hmm. school, you're trying to figure out who you are, what you like, what sports you like, if you're a sporty person at all, uh, you know, if you're a, a reader, if you really love people, if you really love things, all these things are trying to unfold in front of your life. And I found that that was really helpful. And I would like <laughs> cry my eyes out to these people. And, and, and we were close. It was an intimate setting. So I wasn't just crying to random people. But that was probably one of the most important things for me because my family hadn't really dealt with this before. It was the first kind of shocking event. And it really threw us overboard. And we didn't really know how to go through this. So I found that people really helped me in this aspect. And with that being one of your pillars, what would be your recommendation for people going through tough things? Because a lot of people have people in their life, but then there's also people that don't. Mm -hmm. How can people mm -hmm. go through it you know, when they do have people and when they don't? Mm -hmm. Can you kind of open up both yeah. options? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it was, you know, you know, again, like, I'm so sorry for your loss, because I can't even wrap my head around that. You know, like, when you're a young person, those are such informative years, and especially mm. a mom, a dad, like, primary caregiver, you know, and people think like, oh, you're older, but no, like, I, there are people, you, you need your mom, like, no matter how old you are, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, but yeah, in, 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 there's two aspects of what you're saying. One is like loss, loss, grieving loss of a very important primary attachment figure in your life and then no one is mm. ever going to be able to replace that so seeking support is number one recognizing that like you're not looking for anyone to fill a void that really can't be filled by anybody else and that you are looking for a sense of community and it's so beautiful because we don't really talk enough about the role of like church and spirituality and i know people have a lot of mixed feelings about it and but we yeah. do know that people do, yeah. do connect to a higher power or to a religious community or to a community, period. They're better off mentally, healthy-wise. Because when we look at the trends of how the suicide, suicide rates have gone up, how depression, anxiety, drinking, all of that, <clears throat> it coincides with the loneliness crisis, at least in the United States and I think parts of Europe as well. And also it coincides with how we have less religious, social community engagement. So we're not actively involved. We don't have a community. So the first thing is recognizing that the quality of your health and your life depends on your relationship and it's non-negotiable. Having relationships close, tight-knit, even one person that you can see um, eye to eye with or that you feel supported by. And I love the fact that you sought mentorship from older, wiser people. One, one very interesting thing that has come out in the research is having friendships across multiple decades. And that's not something mm. I see a lot. I don't see a lot of 25 year olds having friends that are in you know 35 or 45 and the other way around i don't see that you know people barely are hanging out with the people in their peer circle and that's something that dwindles yeah. with age you know yeah. the number of friends we have in our life i think it kind of peaks in that university period like 18 to 22 and then it starts to go down very drastically as we move for jobs as we partner up if there's children involved and then our lives might center around either the work or the children's community or whatever it is that we're involved in. So the first most important thing is just recognition that your health depends on your relationships and that morbidity and mortality go up, that loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so that's like three quarters of a pack. And wow. if, you don't, if you don't believe in smoking, then you should also believe in the power of going out and busting your A about getting friends because you will live longer and we know that people die quicker 
on average if they don't have good friends. So that's having the intention, intentionality built in. That would be the first step. And then I can go into like, how do you actually make friends and how do you deepen friendships? When I first thought of doing a podcast in 2019, I wrote down everything that I wanted to achieve with the show. And one thing I never wrote down was to spam you with ads of products that I never really used myself. However, I did write down that I wanted to grow it as big as possible and have as many interesting people on the show as I could. To help make that happen, all I ask is that you leave a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to this episode on and share it with someone that you know it will benefit. If you want to support myself even further and more importantly your body transformation and are interested in having me as your coach to help you achieve the results that you just can't seem to achieve on your own, you can visit teambrockashby.com to see what program fits you best. And what about the people that feel like they don't really have people to talk to and to lean on because personally I found myself in this situation also at a later date after I was around this mentorship because I moved cities to try and pursue uh, you know my career in a place that was more heavily populated the place that was more things are going on and to be very honest with you I almost look at it like I had this board of authors of just books that I read because I was really uh, stuck in the self-help space because, <clears throat> excuse me, the first book that I read was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And just like you, when you read the Conquering Shyness book, I felt like this whole world was out there that I was unaware of because I didn't really have, uh, like growing up, I never really thought of, I, I don't know, like maybe you could work for yourself or you could achieve crazy, amazing things. Not that I was in this society that kind of like, or circle that, put me down and was like, you can't do this. They were all very supportive, but I was just never really opened up to these pillars of life that you could live by. And I remember just the simple thing that I read, which was the first habit of highly effective people put first things first. I was like, this is just mm -hmm. so simple, but no one's really mm -hmm. said it to me. Like do the most important things that you need to do at the start of the day and do that. And I was like, wow. So I got stuck in this thing and then I was reading um, Thinking Grow Rich and The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck and I read all yeah. these kind of books and it was just so eye-opening. Is that a way to, like, I, I guess just saying that out loud, I guess it's not the healthiest way to try and, uh, you know, develop optimism or go through something that's very difficult, but what are other ways that people could move through? But, yeah. yeah, because I found that really helpful, but saying it out loud, it's probably not for everyone. No, no. I mean, I love that. I mean, and those all the, the two of the the, the, um, the the books that you mentioned are definitely like the Road Less Travel, one of my favorite books, um, M. Scott Peck, and then the other one, mm. Seven Habits of Highly Effective. Love, love, love. And the stories and the very concrete, tangible advice. And I feel like I think of like when you think of a like a treatment plan, if you were to give somebody, it should be comprehensive. And I feel like books absolutely like I devour them. It sounds like you do, too, and that they've been so powerful and instrumental. And that was kind of when I was writing this book, to be honest with you, mm. those two books that you mentioned and that and like Dale Carnegie's book, like these books are were on my mind. And mm. I'm like they to me, they were travel companions. Right. They were like my life companions. Like I literally have. Every, those books that you mentioned and more all around the house and they were I would always come back and so when I was writing practical optimism I wanted it to be a guide for life a companion for life like a mentor a friend that you keep at your bedside but I would also say supplement them with friendships the real life friendships because sometimes hmm. the saddest thing to me is like feeling lonely when you're in a group of people because they don't understand you because you don't feel validated or seen or heard by them and you know one of the best pieces of advice I got from a show that I was on, we were talking about friendships and developing them as adults. 
And the host was like, I guess one of the best ways to be, to, to have more friends is to be a friend. And it was such a simple way of putting mm. it. And I was like, and I knew that she was such a good person, always doing things in the community and like charity and like giving back and was very driven by her faith. And there was something so beautiful to me about that is in, in an attempt to decrease our own loneliness, we really need to go out and reach to other, reach out to other people and offer them help. And what that does is the minute you talk to someone, even if you're the way that you offer help is to say, how are you doing? That's enough to get you out of your own head. Because our tendency is to ruminate and chew on things. And when you ask someone, how are you? For those few minutes, you're totally engrossed in them and their life. That means you're not ruminating on your own problems. And so the ways to decrease social isolation can be as simple as making eye contact with someone. You're at the elevator, you're waiting. Look at them, smile, say hello, how was your day? We started out, you asked me, how was your day going so far? And I, and I just, I really appreciate that, you know? And then I would say, mm-hmm. when you ask someone how they're doing, wait for them to, to talk about it. And then, you know, if you want, and if it's appropriate to jump in and say something about yourself, but if not, you can keep talking about them. And then at some point get vulnerable, be open, you know? And I really appreciate that you are so open with your own journey and losses because immediately it makes a person feel comfortable with you, you know? And then they want to share. And then I shared with you that like, you know, I, and I talk about my mom's illness, but eventually I lost her too. And it was hard on me and it gave me so many insights and in how to be helpful to others when they're losing someone and grief and caregiving and all of that. So I feel like there's ways to form social connections and I call them social snacking or micro connections where like these built in, you know, your dog walker, the barista, the grocery store clerk, the friend that maybe you're working from remote from home, but you're like, okay, twice a week, I'm going to go in person, even though I don't have to. And I'm going to go to make an attempt to socialize, to have coffee, to have lunch, to have a happy hour, to have a dinner. So I would say once a week, you must absolutely see a friend in person and spend time with them. And then I would say, Mm. if you're lucky enough to make memories with other people, not just talk about the memories you already created, but to make new ones and do activities together. So the hiking, the biking, watching a film together, joining a book club building new memories because what happens as adults is we're often just reminiscing like especially like i'm a parent too and you know i might meet up with my friends and we'll talk about the good old days in medical school when we went to i don't know costa rica you know we went to india we went to spain but we're reminiscing you know and we're not forming new memories so like i feel like now i want to go to comedy shows with friends i want to take a weekend trip with them we might meet up as a family like ski trip so we're making new memories Mm. and we can reminisce about those new memories not just things that happened to us you know 20 years ago that's such a great piece of advice that I'm smiling and nodding my head in agreeing because I find myself in a similar place and maybe it's just because I've just stepped into parenthood and you just feel like, I, I feel like because uh, it was my daughter's first birthday a couple of weeks ago and it just feels like the fastest year of my life has just gone by and mm-hmm. I'm seeing friends too that we have had these memories, these trips to Melbourne and you know, I don't know, sleeping on, you know, like sleeping in the same bed because like there's no other bed. Like it's, it's, it's so tight and, you know, trying to like really work through these really tough times. And it, it, it's so easy just to sit there and go, oh man, like those were, you know, like those were really rewarding times or those were the good days. Um, and like I have a lot of personal trainer friends and like we used to all work out together and now we all got kids. We all like work out alone and, <laughs> you know, like we kind of have yeah. these memories yeah. And yeah, it is so important to prioritize that, but, and it does make it difficult to find the time to do that. Yes. And parenting can, you know, no one talks about the loneliness, you know, and I think especially for men, I think like, because how often are you going to be like, 
like when women, when we get together for dinner or for drinks, like we're sitting across from each other and we're talking and we're sharing and we go emotionally somewhat deep, somewhat quickly, you know, and like stereotypical, I mean, it's not always this way, but stereotypical male friendships, like you're meeting and you're like either playing sports or you're watching a sports game or you're sitting side by side at a bar watching a game, you know, so mm. there's all these things set up to not have to talk and to not have to go deep, you know, because it's always an activity and activities are great, but don't af- don't be afraid yeah. to go deep and be like, yeah, like you were talking to me about this. How are you feel like something like a loss or a change or a stressor? Like, how's that going? You know, like I feel like if somebody had asked me when I if I when I first had, you know, my kids were in the first year of life. If someone asked me, like, how are you doing? Like, I know that Australia has this day. Like, how are you doing? How are you really, really doing? I forget what the name is, but it's like a mental health day where you ask. A question. I think it's are you OK day? Are you OK? Yes. There you go. Yeah. Are you OK? And I like. I love that. And I think we should, we all should be doing that to each other and, and like being prepared to actually hear the other person's response. Like, so, like so much in the United States, we're like, you good? How you doing? And it's like fake. No one's actually wanting an answer. And I feel like if someone had asked me, right, like, like, how are you doing? Like, I know you just had a kid. I know you celebrated the first birthday. It must be so beautiful and so rewarding, but you know, how are you doing? And it would have been an opportunity for me to be like, thank you. I feel seen. It's not easy, you know? Uh, mm. and, and to give someone this phrase I love so much compassionate listening is giving the other person the chance to empty what's in their heart and I want to be able to help people because I do that as a job as a therapist to give them space like an open vessel like go ahead you know vent dump whatever it is you know and we have to be mindful we don't want to keep venting forever I would say 15 minutes is like the sweet spot taking cues if the other person isn't interested in your venting asking for permission is it okay like I'm kind of struggling with this. Like, is it okay if I ask you for your advice? Are you in the right headspace? If not, let me know. Um, and then the other person not interjecting and like, we're so quick to be like, in my opinion, this is what I would do, mm. you know, instead take a yeah. moment and be like, what would be helpful for you right now? Or empathizing, like, I'm so sorry. Like, that's really tough. That must've been really hard. I think listening is becoming so much more rare in this day and age. And I've been more aware of it lately because I'm a coach too in the fitness space. I'm not saying I do what you do, like, you know, people vent and give them advice and how to go through things. But fitness is so tightly tied to people's lives, their personal lives and how they operate. So I do spend a lot of my time listening. And when I sit down and talk to people in my world, sometimes I just kind of like, I'm, act- I'm actively thinking like, are you really listening or are you waiting for an opportunity to speak for me to finish so that you can say, oh yeah, I've been doing this and I've been doing that. Or... Are they asking questions to me just so that they can speak about that exact question? So I'm just going to say something and then they can actually say what they really wanted to say. Um, I think it's, 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 it's really rare. And even with the addition of phones and things like that, being present at the table yeah. or in day-to-day life and even for, for their career, like I have to be on my phone quite a lot throughout the day. If I'm posting, if I'm doing things, not because I want to ignore people, but it's just the reality of how I've chosen to step away from personal training face-to-face to being online. Um, that's the mm-hmm. nature of being online. You have to be on your phone posting content. Um, and I found that it's very tricky for, you know, to have deep and meaningful conversations sometimes, especially with the other addition of having children that you're kind of like trying to keep an eye on. So you're listening, but yeah. you're also like, oh, my kid's over there, over there, might be eating this thing from the floor. <laughs> uh, it's quite difficult to kind of, um, you know, be be heard sometimes. So, yeah, I think asking that person you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Is such a great tool. I wanted to quickly talk about something that uh, I guess 
most people struggle with and even you know myself to some degree is is developing purpose which is your first pillar mm -hmm. in the book mm -hmm. how can people cultivate that to to help yeah develop their optimism because it's such a difficult thing and i feel like it's something that's never ever finished and it's always kind of renewing because you know yeah. personally when my you know when i lost my mother i you know my i i almost had this purpose when i was younger too to like make her proud and that was one of my biggest purposes like and it's probably not the healthiest it was almost to like just do my best for her and make her proud all this kind of stuff and that was like really 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 driving me but i found as i got older it wasn't really doing the same thing as it was and it had to evolve and it really has since mm -hmm. i've had my daughter and i've you know expanded my family now i'm like okay now i really feel like this is my purpose but it's never mm -hmm. really finished i feel like it's going to change as she gets older yeah. and you know maybe doesn't really need me <laughs> as much mm -hmm. yeah. what's the yeah. steps that people can take to develop that yeah, so exactly what you said, you know, our purpose is ever evolving as we are, right? Like our purpose five years ago isn't going to be the same as our purpose today. And it's not going to be the same five or 10 years from now. And that's 100% mm. okay. It's okay to, to recheck in with yourself and be like, am I still driven by the same things? And if I'm not, what do I need to reevaluate here? What needs to change? You know, when you talked about your business, like seeing people face to face, then switching to online, your purpose changed. Your purpose, like the whole idea of scalability is reaching a much larger audience. So the underlying mm. mission is the same, helping people, bringing value. But the way that you did it was shifted and you pivoted. But the purpose of bringing great information, inspiring, motivating, giving, making people feel empowered, giving them scientific tools and knowledge, that remained the same. And so one thing I always say is, you know, write your um, purpose in pen and um, your path in pencil. And what that means is like how you're going to achieve the goal can remain flexible. Because I've had people say, I want to help people, but then they only have one way to do it. I must be, and then, I don't know, a neurosurgeon. And not all of us have that capacity or time or resources to make that happen. Okay, well, mm. why? Because I love the brain. I want to study the brain. What else? Because I want to make a difference. Well, are there other ways to do it? And let's, let's like brainstorm how to do that. So being flexible in how you approach it and also recognizing that sometimes your purpose is not going to be in plain sight. Sometimes you're going to feel like I've lost my sense of purpose. First, I would say as a physician, I have to say, you know, talk to someone because maybe it could be an underlying depression. A lot of times when people mm. are in the midst of an anxiety episode or depress depre depressive episode, they'll say, I don't feel motivated. I don't want to get out of bed. My mood is low. That's different, right? Then that's something that like talking to your primary care doctor, seeing a therapist can be very helpful. But if we're talking about just run of the mill every day, I'm feeling like, yeah, I'm bored, empty, not quite right. Then I say, if you can't find it, create it. And what I mean by that mm. is put the, the cart before the horse. What are some activities that bring you joy? When's the last time you did them? When is the last time you learned? When did you challenge yourself? What activities help put you in a flow state where you feel fully immersed in something that you're learning? but you're also challenging yourself, but you're also kind of good at it to begin with. And that's like the sweet spot, I feel like that. And, and, mm. and it doesn't have to be connected to your paycheck. Your purpose can be, I love to paint. I love pottery. I love raising a family. It doesn't have to be paid. If you can find a way to get paid, amazing. Like to <laughs> me, that's like the pinnacle that you, you know, yeah. the, the um, Japanese idea of ikigai, the purpose, mission, vocation, passion, all align. Nice. That's great advice. 
I've I definitely found myself in a position that you're talking about. <laughs> when I was 20, I remember having this. I call it like a kind of like a quarter life crisis. I couldn't call it a midlife crisis because I felt <laughs> like I'd, I'm going to live a bit older than 40. But I remember um, I was I, I was on the floor. Like I, I'd, I'd pretty much decided I'm giving up on singing and I'm going to try and be a personal trainer. And I remember just like losing it, just pretty much like you know sobbing and just what am I, who am I, why am I, all these kind of questions just flooding through. But an important aspect that you talked about was kind of like figuring out, I guess, some things that you're good at, some things that you're passionate about. And I remember on that same day doing pretty much buying every single personality test that I could because I wanted to find a career that was going to be something that I was good at. And I did all these things and I had this idea of who I wanted to be, but then all these personality tests were pretty much saying the same thing, that I was good at these skills. And I feel like that's an important part of developing purpose. Not that I'm an expert mm -hmm. at all, but I think that you know these practical steps of actually knowing who you are, being self-aware, even getting other people's advice. I'd ask people, you know, what do you think I'm good at? What do you think I'm not good at? So I could try and, you know, just, I, I guess, sit in the pocket of what, where I feel like I could belong. And I felt like I developed a purpose quite early on and and mm -hmm. and I think also you know having the loss in my family helped me to to kind of get a bit of perspective on on life as well and the urgency of how I felt I could help people and mm -hmm. actually make a difference and all this kind of stuff that time wasn't guaranteed and everything like that that really mm -hmm. helped and I think this kind of leans to the other pillar of yours which is probably my favorite which is proficiency mm -hmm. number five and how it mm -hmm. like yeah there's an ax like there's an aspect of actually doing things, not just hoping that mm -hmm. things get better. Can you speak more to that? Because, yeah, like in my life, and I, I know I keep, it sounds like I just keep kind of bringing things towards myself, but, you know, this is a really personal experience for me and it's the best way that mm -hmm. I can come come at it from. Yeah. You know, like me really, I kind of almost used my fuel for that loss into getting better and into mm -hmm. developing and into, you know, developing skills and and, and yes. getting really, really good at what I thought I was good at. Um, mm -hmm. And I think people could do the same as well and, and, and yeah. it would make a big difference. But yeah, please talk more about proficiency. Yes. You know, Brock, as I hear you talk, I'm like, you are the ultimate practical optimist. I mean, that, this <laughs> book, like you embody so many of these pillars and skills and it's just so beautiful to hear like you are, you're living this life and you know, you're putting it into action that, you know, you use loss. I mean, First of all, when it comes to loss, we have to grieve it, right? We have to mourn it. Like sometimes we want to channel it. And I think that can only happen years down the line with help, mm. support, with mm. time, distance from what happened, perspective. Not that that hole in our heart will ever be filled and be gone, but you you used it to figure out a way or, or became a motivator. And then at the same time, you're also very realistic about, okay, plan A doesn't work or it's not working as fast as I wanted to. How can I pivot and create plan B? And then like when you're talking about the singing and then, you know, okay, what next? And that's what yeah. I love because that's the difference between optimism and pessimism and practical optimism, right? The, op the optical, the, um, the blind optimist is the friend that you talked about who's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to L.A. And then I love how you are, you're like either a therapist or a practical optimist is like, OK, that's nice. How are you going to achieve it? Let's do this step by mm. step. So you're realistic. And then proficiency is exactly what you said, which is and there's like 
you know, it's based on the idea of self-efficacy. And this researcher, Albert Bandura, talks about four steps to boost your self-efficacy. And the importance of mm. proficiency and self-efficacy, which I kind of use interchangeably, is it's yes, having abilities, but then it's having confidence in those abilities. And how do you boost it? Because we know for a fact that confidence plus abilities, both, not not one without the other. You have to have capabilities, but you have to you must be confident. Sometimes your confidence predicts success more than the actual ability. So if you have two people who are just as, yeah. as good at a sport or in a competition, if you do some kind of, you know, Jedi mind trick and you make enhance someone's um, confidence, they're going to do better. Same ability. And you if you deter the other person by putting bad things in their mind, like you're a loser, you're going to fail. That person's better than you, the opponent. They will fail. And we know this like that happens in studies. And they and Albert Bandura talks about the best way to boost proficiency is by doing things yourself. Like there's no substitute for it. The next best thing is to learn vicariously through someone else. So like apprenticeship, having a mentor, watching people. So so much of medicine is scrubbing into surgery, watching doctors. Like as much as possible, like that student doctor role, the training like training under someone and then the court you talk about even lifelong learning like you still attend seminars and courses so continuing to grow from people who you consider masters in the field um and then getting feedback from people and i love that you ask people what do you think i'm good at then and that's one of the things i talk about in the book is asking for feedback what do you see in me you know and sometimes i have patients who are in let's say whatever they're in marketing finance they're attorneys and then they're like through our work together, they're like, you know, I think I kind of want to be a therapist, you know, so like, or in some way a helping profession, because they're like, I didn't come to you for like, necessarily career advice, I came because I was feeling depressed. But I realized I was feeling depressed, because I was like, lacking purpose, I feel like I'm making my company more money or whatever it is. And really, I want to see impact, I want to see change, I see the work that you're doing with me, I feel like you got me better. And now I want to give that back. And then they find their own way, you know, like in their own career path, how can they add in So maybe like, choosing a different career path or a lifestyle isn't for everybody. What can you do? Something I call role remake within your own job where you can in some way be of service to other people. Because as you know, Brock, to me, there is no greater joy that comes when you can align passion with purpose by giving back to other people and then seeing the mm -hmm. impact and then teaching them like, as they say, how to fish, not just give them a fish so that they can leave. Like my biggest goal in therapy is to get people better. So they no longer need me. Like I'm happy when mm. they're like, when they're at, when it's our last session and they're like, Dr. Rama, I'm really sorry, but like, I'm going to need to break up with you. And I'm like, why are you sorry? They're like, I'm doing better. And I'm like, that's exactly like <laughs> what I wanted. I, you know, the goal isn't, I mean, people, many people go to therapy long-term for sure. And they find it beneficial yeah. or they'll come back for booster sessions. But at the end of the day, for me, the goal is to equip them with the skills and being able to do what you did, which is I'm going to get a bunch of books. I mean, that's how I learned, you know, when I wanted to develop this other life of speaking and, um, you know, media and all this stuff like back then, like the Internet had just started. So I would go to the bookstore. I was like a kid and like reading as much as I could. How does one do this? And there was no path. There was no career path. Like I felt like I kind of forged this whole part of what I do on my own. And that's the other thing is I didn't really have any mentors, to be honest with you. There was no one really like in the mental health field as a psychiatrist, physician doing this. Like it was kind of even frowned upon when I was in training because psychiatrists were supposed to be secret and private and neutral. And yeah, not about them. 
Yeah, yeah. And that it was almost like they didn't understand. And I was like, this is not about me. Like, I feel like I'm driven by a mission and a purpose much higher than myself. And I know that I love patients. I was actually talking to patients all morning after we're done. I'm going to have more sessions. And no matter how much work I do in the public arena, I will never give up that one-to-one because I love it. It feeds me my soul and nourishes me. But I also know that I wanted a message to get out to people all over the world. You know, like you're on the couple, we're 13 hours apart time-wise, you know, and yet this knowledge and information could transmit to you. It brought us together for this conversation. So having impact on a, on a larger scale. And I had to figure that out for myself. And it took a very long time, very long time. And that's the other thing I would say to people is think about the end game. Think about the end in sight. And it may take you much longer. You know, this all started mm. 20 years ago. So when people are like, oh, how did you get on this TV show and that TV show? I'm like, they're like, who's the PR person? I'm like, no, 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 there's no PR person. It was built organically. <laughs> over two decades, yeah. which is not what they want to yeah. hear because they want they want a quick answer and a quick fix, but there isn't one sometimes. I mean, if you're lucky and you do get it in a much shorter time, amazing. But don't be afraid of the hard work. That's another thing I always say to people is that in that, in all the hardship, being broke, having no money, like that all gave me character, paying for college, you know, always having a job, paying for medical school, like all of that, it made me who I am today. And it would have my life would have been easier, but I wouldn't be the person I am. And I so therefore, I don't think I would trade those set of experiences, loss, challenges and hardships. I can't agree more. I, I, I think that the the times that I went through really developed me as well. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I remember, you know, just packing my car and just driving to a city. You know, the car didn't get a ridge or a warrant because it didn't <laughs> qualify and they were like, well, you know, we can do the car on Monday. And I was like, well, I've booked the ferry for Friday, so I have to go. And, like, it's not the most <laughs> intelligent thing to do. And it's not the, you know, it wasn't a legal way to do it. But, I, like, I just went because I had to, like, set things in. And then I remember, yeah, trying to pay for the bills. And I, I worked all these other random jobs. I was washing dishes. I was trying to sell, um, well, we call them jandals in New Zealand. They call them thongs in, um, in Australia. But I think in America they call them flip-flops. I was working yeah. for Javianas trying to sell them and I did all these different jobs. I, I tried my hand at modeling. I was, you know, I, I wasn't tall enough, um, you know, and then I, I actually did a TV presenting job and then I did that and I, it just didn't really sit well, you know, but I just kept trying all these things and doing these things and I feel like not enough people and I have worked with a few and also just observed in my daily life, like, I find that the people coming up like teenagers and stuff like that are kind of almost opting out to really applying themselves because yeah. they're seeing so I, – I, I feel like it, it, it could be many things. Um, but I just feel like, yeah, they kind of struggle to like look people in the eye and have a conversation. These kind of like real-world skills because they're spending so much yeah. time online. Like they're on Snapchat. They're, you know, they're posting these random like selfies of the sky and just saying what they're doing, like, you know, just at home, what about you? And like, it's not really meaningful conversations, but also they like, they're seeing all these people like a 18 year old billionaire doing this and doing that. So they feel like, well, what the hell? Like, why would yeah. I, why would I try and do something when someone's just doing something that's so much more amazing than me? I'm just gonna, you know, keep doing what I'm doing and just like cruise on by. But I think I was, I was lucky. I was fortunate to live in a time where I didn't compare myself to other people online and I was just like, well, I think I can do it. So I'm just going to pack my pack my car and go and just and just yes. try and see what happens. I feel like that yeah. that there's a decrease in that and this isn't backed by anything that I've read in research because I don't really read this type of research. I read fitness research, but I just feel 
like it's just so common these days for people to actually yeah. not apply themselves as much and even in the fitness yeah. space they're trying to look at taking peptides they're looking at trying to take you know different compounds to boost their and i'm like just get in the gym and start working out and just see what happens yeah. first you know let's yeah. let's worry yeah. about all that yeah. other stuff later on but it like people are just trying to i don't know get these kind of shortcuts without doing the work without prioritizing proficiency exactly you know and it's so true like there's actually i talk about this exactly what you said is this self-absorption like you know there's so many kind of books that play with this theme of like the selfie generation and like there's this, um, a researcher who in the chapter the pillar on present i talk about what's changing in the world like and this she, there's a researcher she talks about the shallowing hypothesis and how everything is shallow from our connections to the way we read and even like reading online um we, we, we skim things and then people are actually like highly inaccurate in the way that they're perceiving information compared to reading mm -hmm. something from a book and like how even how you visually input information in your brain it's better on a paper than um printed paper than looking at something online and we're consuming all of our information in like short form videos so like you know when i'm being given information about like creating videos online they're like keep it to less than 30 seconds keep it to less than 15 seconds and the number just Man. gets smaller and smaller first it was three yeah. minutes and then it got yeah. one minute so i'm noticing just in the last two years the advice that i'm getting is make it shorter and shorter i'm like what is it going to be and then they're like oh you have to capture i mean you, you're the expert on this but you must capture people's attention in three seconds because they're on to the next and so mm. we don't have attention spans and these kids like i love them because i'm raising them so you know and i but the idea that they can get or that they should get amazing things without the hardship because it's not shown online right like all we're hearing about is like you know 10 year old youtubers who make 20 million a year because looking mm. at toys and you're like okay that is the minority and you know their yeah. surveys have come out that more kids would rather be youtubers than astronauts and that was never the case like people aspire to do and yeah i mean look i i think it's great like also but you know having like being a youtuber but it's a lot of work and it's a full-time profession so like if if you're going into it go for it but just know that like that you're not getting the 20 million unless you're willing to commit and dedicate yourself yeah and years of your life to that too like the yeah. the whole kind of thing of youtube it's well it depends on the youtuber but they don't really show the struggle but the only like yeah. the best way to do it is to look at the like their oldest videos and you can see often how long they've been posting and maybe they've come to popularity in the last six months or three months but there's like 10 years of catalog of them yeah. uploading 100 views 200 views like no one watching at all yeah it's a very yeah, yeah. yeah it, it also is a very challenging job yes and i would say like whatever whatever interests you profession wise i think the one question and i'm also realizing this from my own personal journey and the endeavors that i take on is sometimes we're so excited uh, to do something and there's nothing wrong in just jumping in but if i would give advice looking back for example even writing this book it was years and years and years of research and then writing and then editing and i don't think i had any idea what i was walking into and how long it would be how grueling it would be how many sacrifices i would make like on top of you know, raising family, working full-time patients, media, mm. talks that I give, teaching. I had no idea. I was just like, I want to do it. And I think sometimes you have to just jump in. And maybe if you were to gather the information, like kind of like being a parent, if somebody told you how hard it was, you're like, no, thank you. So maybe sometimes <laughs> we don't want to know, right? Because maybe we wouldn't do it. But what I would say, having been through this experience and now on the other side, one part of proficiency is also just 
finding out what the grunt work, what the scut work looks like. And if you can handle the worst day or year or stretch of what your dream profession is and you're still willing to do it, then by all means go into it. But know what the lowest points can possibly be and know that how long they could possibly last. But, but if once you know that and you go in, you're, you're fine. That's such a great way to look at it because often we look at it the other way around and it's like, what is the best thing? And then we just strive for that. But then the, the grunt work comes and hits you day by day. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, yeah. Gr- the, the grunt work of YouTubing is writing scripts. It's, you know, it's, it's editing. It's finding people to get involved. It's, you know, doing all these things. But you just see these views and this fame and, you, and this money and you're yeah. like, oh, that, that sounds so great. Yeah. But you're, like, you're yeah. not ready at all for the work. I see that yeah. a lot. And, that's, and I think what's so helpful about knowing the hardest part of it is the way that I look at it is because when I hear people talk, they'll mention a famous person, they'll mention how much resources and money they have, and then they get mm. very bitter and down about the other person. And, oh, they just have help. Of course, they have a staff. They have a bunch of nannies. And like, oh, they look fine. They look great because, you know, they're a celebrity. And, of course, they have all the money for the celebrity fitness trainers. And, like, there's always kind of excuses of I couldn't ever achieve that. Granted, that person has all of those things, a full staff and blah, blah, blah. But you're not looking at the fact that they're not with their families. They're working maybe 18 hours a day. And like, mm. so if you want their life, then think about every sacrifice that they made to get there. And are you willing to take that on? And if you can't, then you know what? You need to be quiet and be give props and be like, you know what? All the more power to you. Instead, I see people hating on successful people rather than to be like, good for you. I'm comfortable staying home and going to bed by 830. Like if, you know, because I, I have friends who are very, they own it. They're like, I have no ambition. I'm very comfortable with the, whatever I have. And to me, that's good for you. At least you're happy. The, the, the unhappiness yeah. comes from the dissonance of I want to be here, but I'm here, right? And I would say if you're there and you're happy with it and you're not willing to put in the work to bridge that gap, then own it and have, be at peace with yourself. And that's what, and we're not. And that's why we're so unhappy is that restlessness and that tension between who I am and who I think I should be, not even who I want to be. Maybe I don't want to be that YouTuber, but maybe I just want their lifestyle because I think other people value it. And if I become that person, then they'll respect me. Yeah, that 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 dissonance is, I, I think, bigger than it ever has been because we would never have, you know, seen someone back in the day who lived in Dubai and lived this crazy life because we just never would have met them. Or even in the same yeah. country, you know, we we maybe wouldn't have rubbed shoulders with people that are, you know, living this certain lifestyle that you would potentially want to attain but now we're surrounded by it you can just scroll it and then then the more that you see it like the more you watch these videos of successful people stepping out of Lamborghinis and you know going into their mansion then the more that will just continually show you so then you have this disparity as well of what real life is like like your real life and then other people's Mm -hmm. lives and then yeah it kind of results in in unhappiness Sue thank you so much for oh sorry you go Oh, I was going to say unhappiness personally and also within your peer groups because then your friends are like, oh, yeah, you think you're doing well? No, you know, there's someone who's got 10 times more more followers than you do. So then you get <laughs> put down even indirectly. No one's trying to hurt you, but then they, they put you kind of, you feel like they're putting you in your place rather than celebrating you. So then I think that then it starts to trickle and your own peer group judges you. And I feel like that's the other thing is like being online where if you do have an online business, everyone is always critiquing somebody based on how many followers, because it's all public. Like your, <laughs> your, it's almost become 
your social standing. You know, like maybe back in the old days was like what kind of family you were born into, what kind of name you were born into. And, um, you know, the idea of meritocracy, can you earn? But, but just, I think, being judged in such a public way where everyone can see and it almost becomes in some social circles like what your value and worth is. Like sometimes I'll be spending time with like a group of influencers and everybody knows the, the stats of the other person. And it's so weird to me. But <laughs> it's so weird. How we judge each other. It's such a stupid yeah. metric. It's such a stupid metric. I can't, yeah. I can't stand that world. And, and like as... Like I get grouped into the fitness influencer space and fair enough, you know, I'm a fitness person who posts daily or, or more and, but every time I've been in this group setting, I've never really felt like at home. I've never felt like this is what I do because, you know, and this is nothing against them at all, but I just feel like I don't value the same things. You know, I'm not really, uh, I never really started posting and this is probably the same as you, you know, to have x amount of followers or to have you know this amount of 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 reach and stuff like i only started posting really when i realized that it helped me to get clients which helped me to mm -hmm. you know propel my career and you know and help more people and you know have the satisfying feeling of making a difference and i know yeah. that sounds quite cheesy but and, and 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 sometimes i have been you know i'd like to get this milestone of followers and, and all that kind of stuff but i was never breaking my back over it and like feeling yeah. like I'm, yeah. a, I'm above someone that that only has 100k like oh how embarrassing you know what I mean like it was never like that it was just yeah I just I, I, I don't know I feel like we're often chasing the wrong things because yeah there's people that run businesses with 20,000 followers that are much more successful than people with millions yeah you know but then people will look yeah. at this million you know this person has yeah. a million followers and say oh they must be successful and stuff like that but yeah. followers don't really pay the bills you know like it depends on yeah. what you're doing with it and like what value you're providing on the back of that um so yeah. often you know, you know people are striving for things that don't really mean anything yes and that's such a beautiful way to put it is that like followers don't pay the bills and you know no disrespect to the followers that are like engaging with their content or consuming it mm -hmm but to be very intentional about what you do and why you do it and what what your return on investment is and what you're hoping to do and to not break your back or to like to not you know to like they say to um you're missing the the forest for the trees you know like what was the big picture goal and mm. um chasing the wrong metric of success and so i think part of purpose part of all of these p's is defining what success looks like for you becoming very intentional and then being okay with letting go of certain things to be like, okay, like, you know, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to be getting, you know, a million followers. That's not my goal. That's not my aim. My goal and aim is to be content, to feel like I'm impactful. Um, and then to be happy and to live a balanced life, you know, and right now I might be in a moment of imbalance because the book is coming out, but you know, I, I'm a private person. And at the end of the day, I just, I want to enjoy my work, I love to travel, my family, my friends, and I want to get back to a simpler life. You know, I feel like we're moving in this direction where we're becoming distorted. Our sense of perception of reality is distorted, fame, mm. money, success, everything is warped now. And I do think that like we need to turn back the clock a little bit. Like I love the fact that we can all meet each other and learn cool things about each other through online, but it can't be the only way that we nourish ourselves. Yeah, it's it's it it like doesn't give you any sustenance it's not nourishing for the soul uh what yes. I, i've been a big fan of probably the last few years um and i'll wrap up soon with this but um has been just like card games and board games and it sounds pretty yeah. it sounds pretty lame um but mm -hmm. like it's actually so fun 
like playing yes. Monopoly deal and, and like for Christmas I got like some card games and stuff because my family kind of knows me and, and all this kind of stuff and like you learn so much about people as well like friends and family you laugh and all these kind of things like but on the other side of the spectrum like it's 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 nothing to really post about it's nothing to be like oh man I stayed at home and played board games with my family <laughs> like it's yeah. you know it, 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 it sounds nerdy it sounds lame but like to be honest, it's probably one of the most memorable times of like these last holidays. Like my family came over from New Zealand and, and, and we were playing Exploding Kittens, which is this game. Anyway, it's really cool. But we played it and like we couldn't wait to play it at night when the kids were asleep. And it was, it was like awesome. super fun. But, you know, it's not going out to the clubs and popping bottles and, you know, taking photos in front of this yeah. wall and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I I I feel like the the simple things in life should be prioritized, like having a a, a simple happy happy life, because that is what sustains you. That is what makes you not feel lonely in a room of people, because you have genuine yeah. connections. And as yeah. you said, those are the pieces that are missing in people's lives quite quite a lot of the time. Absolutely, and being able to find joy and meaning. Um, like you said, in relationships and then in your own hobbies, in your own interests and being able to amuse yourself, not needing something from the outside, whether it's validation or stimulation, right? Like we're either looking for approval or we're looking for stimulation in some way. So to be able to be self-sustaining and say, if I have access, and to me, I think the biggest, one of the biggest journeys in all of this is if I have all of this, great, it's a bonus. So looking at the success and the fame as like the icing on the cake, but it's not the whole cake. Yeah. And I think that's where we're getting a little bit confused these days. So all all great stuff. I love it. You're like the self-help master. I love it. Oh, no. I've just read so many books. I feel like when I talk, it just comes out because I just, yeah. Yeah, I just love it so much. But th uh, thank you so much, Sue, for coming on um, and sharing your knowledge around this topic that for me and for many people has just been, you know, people will say optimism and you just kind of like roll your eyes and you're like, yeah, whatever. Thanks for providing details on it. And really, you know, take away practical optimism tips. Uh, the book comes out February 20th. Where can people get it? And, you know, well, I guess I was going to say, what are you getting up to next? But it's, you know, it's, it's releasing the book. It's, you know, having talks and stuff like that. But where can people find more about you and about the book? Yes, thank you so much for asking. So the book, wherever, you, wherever books are sold, local bookstores, online, and it's coming out in a bunch of different world languages. So I'm excited that, you know, people in you know, Spanish speaking, Korean speaking, Turkish, Arabic, people will be reading it. Um, so that's super exciting. And because I think of myself as like a citizen of the universe. So I love that people will be able to engage with this. And um, online, my website is drsuvarma.com, the full word doctor. And then on Instagram is the best way to always stay in touch. And I love hearing from people. Um, if they read the book and they can tag it and share it and, you know, even form their own practical optimism clubs, you know, book clubs, support club to keep each other accountable. Because at the end of the day, it's a philosophy and a mindset and it's a practice that needs to be practiced. So I would love to hear, you know, for, for your listeners to keep in touch with me on, um, on Instagram and let me know how it's going and what works, what doesn't work, what they want to see more of. So I'm going to be out there and promoting and giving talks and, but, um, you know, this is something I really want to engage because right now it's been working in my life and in the patients that I've been working with for 20 years. But I really want to see how does this work in people's lives and do, are they finding it like workable? What are the stumbling blocks? And the other thing is this is not going to replace therapy. You know, so if at any point you're feeling that you're struggling and it's the book is not can't be that replacement. So to seek a professional guidance uh, if needed. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, all the best with all the promotions. You know, I've seen you very active on Instagram, jumping on TV, doing interviews and, you know, providing great knowledge. All the best with that and balancing that with, you know, being, uh, you know, a family lady and everything like that. I, and, and once again, I appreciate your time. Like, I've read a ton of books on subjects like this. I'm all here for it. And, yeah, I can't wait to get a copy of yours and read it and let you know what I think as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's so great talking to you. And I love that you embody so many of these principles already. So happy that you're sharing this and I really appreciate it.